Revelation chapter 6 tonight, you guys are all primed and pumped for, for uh, destruction, because that's what we're going to talk about this evening. Thanks for coming to church. <laughs> Revelation chapter 6, we have a lot to get through tonight. We're going to try to handle this whole chapter, which will be a minor miracle. So, um, so just to make it extra hard on us, I want you also right now to turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And uh, I do want you to set your eyes on these verses, so please don't just, don't just be passive right now. Uh, and then also Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24, if you really want to understand what's happening in chapters 6 to 19, it is good to have a, a decent grasp on these other chapters as well. They're all connected. Matthew 24, let me just mark this here. All right, let's, let's just pray again and ask God to touch our time. Father, thank you. Every time we open the word, we know that you speak. And uh, because your word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and God, um, we pray that you would help us to hear. We pray that you would help us to have receptive hearts tonight. Uh, God, we wouldn't be here if that wasn't already the case. And yet still, Lord, we, we pray that you would help us to lean into you and to give you our full attention and whatever it is, God, whatever it is you want to bring to bear on our hearts tonight, we pray that your Holy Spirit would just do so, cause your word to pierce deep so that we might grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, we're beginning a, a whole section within a section. So remember, I, I talked a lot about how this book has a divine outline, and it's laid out in Revelation chapter 1. And when we began chapter 4, we really began the third section of the divine outline. There's only three sections, uh, but chapter 4 was the beginning of the final section. Within this final section, not to be complicated, there is uh, in and of itself uh, a kind of a breakdown of uh, different themes and topics. Uh, specifically, as we start Revelation chapter 6, like you guys know, chapters 4 and 5 thematically was about what? It was about hell, right? No, wrong. It was about heaven. Sheesh. You guys with me tonight? Like, okay, help me out here. Um, it was about heaven. Revelation chapter 4 and 5, the heavenly scene. We're introduced to all these amazing creatures the songs of heaven, remember the songs of heaven with me tonight? Nod your heads, come on, little interaction, or I'll just wrap up in prayer. Um, and now chapter 6, we're, we're starting uh, the seven-year tribulation period. So chapter 6 all the way to chapter 19 deals with what we call the great tribulation. And we're going to we're going to discuss this, obviously, in a lot of detail. Uh, all of it's super significant. You might be thinking, well, we, we believe in the pre-trib rapture and we're not going to be here. Why does it matter? Because everything in the Bible matters. And if it, if, if it didn't matter, God wouldn't have included it in the scripture. Um, in addition to that, look, you see today, uh, everything is moving in that direction. So everything that we experience today is in some sense, and of course it always has been, but as we get closer... Uh, to the tribulation period, each thing that we experience even is more and more germane to what's going to happen in these seven years. Uh, John Corson used to say this about the tribulation. He used to say the purpose of it was to wake up a nation, shake up the heathen, and make up the kingdom. And I, I think that that's true. 
you know, what is God doing? He's waking up a nation. Which nation is he waking up? Israel, thank you. He's waking up the nation of Israel. They've been, they've been reborn in a sense. The Jewish people have uh, had the great privilege of, of returning to their homeland, which is, was a miracle in and of itself. Um, but it's not just a, a physical awakening. There's going to be a spiritual awakening. And so the seven-year tribulation period is the period of time that God is going to fulfill his covenant promises with Israel, national promises as well as personal promises. He's going to shake up the heathen. And so we know that the, the unbelieving world is going to experience great tribulation. And they are going to be shaken. Not all of them are going to be shaken into belief. Of course, there will be some Gentiles, some non-Jewish people that respond to the gospel. Um, but in a, in, a, in a way, in a way, he is fumigating planet Earth uh, preparing it for the return of his son. And that is the third piece. He's going to make up the kingdom. And so all of that leads right into the literal 1,000-year period of time that we call the millennium, the kingdom age, where Jesus is going to rule and reign after his second coming from the city of Jerusalem. And we are going to rule and reign as his administrators in that kingdom. So very excited about that. Um, this period of time, like, you know, like I had mentioned this last week, last Sunday night, that people view this period of time differently with respect to um, the outpouring of God's wrath. I think actually it was two Sunday nights ago. Uh, and so we know, we do know that there is going to be, uh, uh, you know, a special time is not the way to put it because when I say it like that, it has the connotation of good. Um, there's going to be a specific time within the tribulation period. It's all going to be the wrath of God from, from my perspective. Um, but there's going to be a specific time within that time that's even going to be worse. It's going to be even more challenging. So as you look back at the prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets um, in the Old Testament, there is a, a lot of information about this particular period of time and it would be good for you to go back and uh, to do your own survey of that. But that being said, this period of time in the Old Testament is called the Day of the Lord. Uh, it is called a time of trouble or tribulation. Uh, it is called uh, the time or the day of trouble in Daniel and Zephaniah. Uh, in Jeremiah, it is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, my view is that that deals specifically with the last three and a half year period of this seven year period. So, you know, this concept was not unfamiliar to the Jewish mind. Uh, I want you to turn back to Daniel chapter 9. Some of you are familiar with Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, I don't have time tonight to get into all the details. If you're not familiar with it, I know that we have, uh, we've talked about it uh, at length. And so there's, there are studies that you can review that we've done. But Daniel, just real quick, Daniel was given uh, a vision. The angel Gabriel came and interpreted the vision for Daniel. And what Daniel saw was a 490-year period of time that specifically dealt with the children of Israel. That period of time was broken up into a 483-year period and then a seven-year period. The 483-year period dealt with when Messiah was going to come the first time. And in fact... This prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 lays out the specific day that uh, the Messiah would reveal himself to the people of Israel. Uh, we know when that time began, the moment that the clock started ticking, that was when Artaxerxes 
uh, who was ruling uh, over Persia at the time, commanded Nehemiah to go back and to rebuild the walls. So that was when the prophetic clock started ticking, 483 years from that point, or 173,880 days later, according to this prophecy, Messiah would reveal himself. And that day is the day that Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives and uh, descended into Jerusalem. We call that the triumphal entry. There was a break between that period of time, 483 years, and the final seven-year period of time, separate, distinct, In between those times, there was a parenthetical period of time that we know now as the age of grace or the church age. Not just a period, not just a month, not just a year, but to this point after the resurrection of Christ, we're talking 2,000 years of church history. So we're still, according to this prophecy, we're still looking for that seven-year period uh, to be completed. So verse 26 of Daniel chapter 9 You can start from verse 24 later on and reread this yourself. But the Bible says, and after the 62 weeks, uh, so it's really 62 plus the 7, or 69 weeks. A week is a seven-year period of time. So we're talking about 483 years. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. The phrase cut off Um, can also be translated, he'll suffer the death penalty. So already, you know, 600 years before the coming of Christ, we see in this portion of Scripture that the Messiah is going to suffer. He's going to suffer a horrible death. He's going to be cut off. It's the death penalty. He's not going to die for himself. Who did he die for? He died for us. And the people of the prince who is to come, we're talking about the Antichrist now, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, The end of it shall be with the flood, until the end of the war desolations shall be determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. You know, according to this prophecy, that one week period of time is a seven-year period. So this is where we know that we're talking about the work of the Antichrist during that last seven-year period of time that we call the Great Tribulation. But in the middle of the week, so three and a half years Into this, the Antichrist will bring an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation, which is to be determined, is poured out on the desolate. So, I mean, this was super vague to Daniel at the time. Uh, He had no clue what any of this meant. This actually would be quoted by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, the abomination of desolation. What does it refer to? It refers to when the Antichrist, who is yet to come, he'll make his way on the scene, from my point of view, after the church is raptured, at the beginning of the tribulation period, three and a half years into this, uh, having made a covenant with the nation of Israel, he will go into the third temple, the rebuilt temple. It's not on the temple mount right now. Uh, But we've talked about this as well, and we'll talk about it more because it's laid out in Revelation chapter 12. He'll go into that rebuilt temple, and he'll commit the abomination of desolation. Sacrifices will be reinstituted, but he's going to go in and say, hey, you're not making sacrifices to Yahweh anymore. You're making sacrifices to me. He's going to put himself in the place of God. Uh, And Jesus is going to say, when that point in time comes, get out of Jerusalem as quickly as you can. And so just from, you know, the 30,000-foot view, 
Daniel, 600 years before the coming of Christ, 2,600 years ago, is already laying out the framework for the tribulation period. Sound okay? You with me? Matthew chapter 24, hang a right. Matthew chapter 24, and, uh, and I want to read... I want to read a handful of verses here, okay? Matthew chapter 24 is almost a direct parallel with Revelation chapter 6. In fact, the, se- the six seals that we're going to see opened in Revelation chapter 6 uh, have a direct correlation to everything that Jesus mentions here in chapter 24. Jesus, this is the last week of his earthly ministry. Uh, this is what we call the Passion Week. He's left the, the temple. Um, he's... As he's walked out, he is with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. That's why this is called the Olivet Discourse. They ask a question. So let me just start from verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. It was magnificent, rebuilt by Herod, took 42 years to rebuild, and it was a sight to behold. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, that's why it's called the Olivet Discourse, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? When will the destruction of the temple be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So what things can we look to to know that you are coming again. Um, it, evidently, like he had laid this out to them in, to some extent. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must yet come to pass, but the end is not yet. Hey, by the way, just a little side note here. Why is it, like some people say, Pastor, why aren't you all freaked out? Why aren't you, why aren't you up in arms? Look what's happening all around us. Aren't you concerned? And I say, well, why would I be concerned? Because Jesus told me not to be troubled. He said it himself. All these things must come to pass. He is still in control. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows, birth pangs that precede uh, birth. That's the illustration that's given. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. So he's, he's specifically tying what he's saying right now. Look, when Jesus is speaking here, he's talking about the great tribulation, And the disciples he's referring to, some of you may disagree with me on this, but I'm pretty strongly convinced that Jesus' message here is to the tribulation saints, specifically to the Jewish tribulation saints. I'm talking about Jews who've chosen to put their trust and faith in Christ. That really is the whole context. And if you don't get that, you'll start taking these things and you'll be applying them to a people and to a period of time that they do not apply to. 
That's why when I, I look at chapter 24, especially when it's talking about how he's going to come back, I don't misconstrue that as being about the rapture of the church. He's talking specifically about the second coming. And he frames this, he frames it like this because he puts and places, Daniel puts and places the abomination of desolation in the middle of the tribulation period. So he says when that goes down right in the middle of the tribulation period, according to Daniel, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, right? We're talking about a localized group of disciples. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then, now we're talking about Jacob's trouble. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. Back to Revelation chapter 6. So, so Jesus describes the signs that will precede his coming. Uh, and you're going to notice, like I said here, as you, the lamb is taken, the scroll from the hand of the father, he is the only one who has the authority, the right, the power to uh, open up the scroll, to undo the seals. All of that now begins. The Bible says in verse 1, chapter 6. Y'all with me? Now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, um, you're going to notice that it is the lamb who opens every one of these seals. And so uh, what does that mean? That means, number one, that he is in control and he is providentially, providentially ruling over all of these expressions of the wrath of God. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. So four living creatures, remember they surround the throne uh, in, in the opening of the first four seals, each one of the living creatures says, with a mighty voice evidently, come and see. And I looked and behold a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. So first seal is open. This is what he sees. He sees a white horse. We're going to see four horses here. They're four horses of different color. Um, these are the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, if you will. Um, and this particular white horse, white, of course, always representing victory. That was the, the mindset of the, the people in this era. On it sat an individual. He had a crown on his head. He had a bow in his hand. Uh, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, there are a lot of people who, when they read the description of this individual, they say, oh, well, that must be Jesus, right? I mean, Revelation chapter 19, the Bible says he comes riding on a white horse, white horse, white horse. You know, I mean, let's make the connection here. It must be Jesus. But I don't believe that this is Jesus. Uh, number one is this, the word for crown. They also say, hey, he's got a crown, just like Jesus had a crown. White horse crown must be the Lord. Uh, the word for crown here in Greek is stephanos, not, not diadem. And so it's a different type of crown. It's not a ruling crown like the kind of crown a king would wear. Uh, this individual, who, whoever he is, we'll talk about who I think he is in just a second, he was given power to have victory. Like the Bible says, he goes out to conquer. He goes out conquering and to, to conquer. Not only that, but I don't think it's the Lord because this dude is riding with some nasty other dudes He's riding with war, he's riding with famine, and he's riding with death. So who is this guy? 
Um, I do think that this individual is the Antichrist. Uh, there are about 33 titles in the Old Testament for the Antichrist, 13 different titles in the New Testament for the Antichrist. And the word Antichrist doesn't just mean against Christ, it means in replacement of Christ. So remember, this is the ultimate deception that the devil wants to foist upon people, is that there is another Messiah that can replace the real Messiah. He has a bow in his hand. Now, some people say that this symbolizes he's an individual of war, and I think that that's, that's potential. That's for sure a potential. As you look at the scripture, uh, the bow was symbolic of that mighty hunter Nimrod, who was always a type of the flesh. He, in a way, is a type of the Antichrist as Babel was built in the city that he had founded. Uh, we know that the Antichrist ultimately is go going to be a person of war, but he doesn't start that way, right? I mean, he comes in peace. He's got a great capacity through his own cunning. Daniel says, we'll read about this in just a minute, to unite people. I mean, he's, he has this influence. You think about the kingdom that he's going to build, uh, he's going to be influencing kings to, to, to unite regionally. And then as he unites ten kings regionally, he himself is going to rise up and take all power from them. He's going to establish a global government. He's going to establish a global religious system. And so he has got great power to influence. He has a bow in his hand, but he doesn't have any arrows uh, and so that might be indicative of the fact that he demonstrates a lot of power, um, but really he is using his deceptive power to gain influence over people. Some people also say, you know, I'm not, I don't really buy into this necessarily, um, but the translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek is called the Septuagint. And the word for bow here in Greek is the same word that's used in the Septuagint for the rainbow um, that came, that God gave as a sign of the covenant after the destruction of the earth as a flood. It represented peace. And so some people say, well, because those words are the same, it symbolizes that he comes in peace. We know for sure that his methods will be, uh, will be peaceful, right? I mean, he's going to come with answers. He is going to solve economic difficulties. He is going to bring solutions to the Middle East, Somehow he's going to be influential in getting the Jewish temple to be built on the Temple Mount again. And, you know, if you've ever been on the Temple Mount with me, you know how um, violently opposed Muslims are to either Orthodox Jews being present, present on the Temple Mount or even Christians reading and praying on the Temple Mount. He is going to bring solutions to things like pandemics. He's going to bring worldwide solutions to these global issues and difficulties, and it would seem that people are going to willingly hand over their freedoms to him. All the groundwork for that is being laid right now. Daniel chapter 8 verse 23 says this, a king shall arrive having fierce features, this is about the Antichrist, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall not destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Excuse me, he shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. So that final three and a half year period is also going to be another holocaust for the Jewish people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, which means that he even will oppose Jesus. 
So right away, as this tribulation period begins, the Antichrist is revealed, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Seal number 2. When he opened, that is the lamb, when the, when the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. So, really briefly, this doesn't really need a lot of explanation. The second thing is the exact correlation to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. He said, hey, preceding my coming, this is what's going to happen. There are going to be wars. There are going to be rumors of wars. There are going to be kingdoms that rise up against kingdoms. And that's what this red, fiery horse represents. The, the, the seal represents the taking of peace from planet Earth, and the taking of peace from planet Earth just opens the door for more men to kill each other. Let me tell you something. Man knows how to kill man, right? I mean, this is for sure something that we seem to be really good at. In fact, in the 20th century, there was definitely a rise in wars. Um, as you just study the various wars of the 20th century, just between World War I and World War II, there were 100 million people who lost their lives. And some people who study these statistics say that there were more people killed in the wars of the 20th century than all other wars throughout history combined. I mean, that, that just kind of puts things into perspective. Some people say, hey, listen, we're evolving. We're, we're a kinder, more gentler uh, society. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, you just check the news out every day. Like right now, you have Russia under Vladimir Putin, taking a whole bunch of troops and positioning them right outside of the Ukraine. He's done this before, but we live every day with the threat of war in various places. And what happens is we just, we just become numb to it. All of this is escalating ultimately to the Great Tribulation period. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal... I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. Uh, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. So a denarius was a day's wage. And do not harm the oil and the wine. So look, if you're going to tie these things together, of course... Uh, when there's war, there's also a loss of commodities. But it would seem that this third seal is talking about famine. So it's not just induced by humanity, but there does seem to be, uh, in this great tribulation period, at its inception, famines that are going to be global in nature. There's going to be a scarcity of food, uh, and then the cost for just basic sustenance is going to rise to the point where just a day's wage is going to buy one person enough to eat. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? No, you say, well, kind of. I mean, inflation right now, right? I mean, just in October alone, the cost of food because of inflation went up 6%. So, yeah, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. I mentioned that this morning. Some people say, ah, it's not inflation, you know. I mean, it's, a, it's all COVID-related or it's just, a, it's just a blip. No, it is, in fact, inflation. And just... Thanksgiving meal alone, the people who calculate this stuff said this year's Thanksgiving meal typically costs people 14% more than it did last year. Um, so listen, what we might be in right now is just a, a momentary blip and, in, it, you know, inflationary 
circumstances that we're dealing with. But in this particular time, it's going to be widespread famine. And you'll, you'll just have enough from a day's wage to feed yourself, not even including your family. Like, I mean, if you just think about this from a global perspective, you can imagine what type of suffering will be connected to this. Which is why the Antichrist is going to be able to exert so much influence. You know, we've seen the power that can be vested into a single person when there's something like a global pandemic, right? Just a few people making decisions for everybody. Well, the Antichrist is going to be doing that very thing during the tribulation period. And there's, it's, it does seem that there's going to be a contrast between the ultra-wealthy and everybody else. Because while just the food that's necessary for sustenance is going to be affected by the famine, those things that would be considered luxury items will not be affected. So, you know, the scripture here says, but do not harm the oil and wine. It's, it's, it would seem that the people who are kind of insulated from this, uh, at least at this point in time, are the ultra-wealthy. I was just doing a little research on this. You probably know all of this information. But the world's richest 1% have as much wealth as 6.9 billion people living on the face of planet Earth right now. Or I thought this was interesting. In 2018, the 26 richest people in the world ha held as much wealth as half of the global population at the time. 3.8 billion people. So for a period of time, there's going to be some insulation for those who are wealthy. But listen, that for sure is not going to last forever. Uh, and I know, look, you can extrapolate this principle into our time right now. If you for a second think that you're going to be insulated from difficulty because of the, you know, the wealth that you have stocked up for yourself, you have another thing coming. I remember in 2007, you know, when there was that massive recession that we went into, I remember spending time with people who had built their businesses to a place where they thought they, would, they could retire in their 30s and they would never have to work another day in their life. And it was all gone in a minute. And I remember them saying, you know what, Pastor, I didn't think, I never thought I would be in this place. I never thought I would have to ask God for another thing. You know, the person who puts their trust and faith in their wealth is a fool. Verse 7. When he opened, ending on that note for seal number three, verse seven, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades. So um, there is one single writer, but he's personified by two things, death and Hades. Hades being the abode of the dead. So I, I like the way that um, Warren Wearsby put this. Death represents... The power over the physical body, Hades represents the power over the soul. Um, so Hades followed with him and power was given to, to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by beasts of the earth. So seal number four is widespread death. Fourth living creature says, come and see. It's a pale horse. Uh, the word pale may be translated in your Bible ashen. The Greek word is chloros. It's where we get our word chlorine from. Uh, so the hue of this particular horse was, was green and yellow. Um, and, you know, that is the color of death. It's also, by the way, the color of leprosy. Uh, death 
in Hades was riding this horse, like I said, death representing power over the body, Hades representing power over the soul. Hades right now is filled and being filled with all those who've rejected Christ as their savior and will be emptied out at the great white throne of judgment. There was authority and power. You can see progressively that these seals are getting uh, worse and worse in their expression of God's wrath. Uh, but there was a, a authority and power given to this particular rider to unleash um, infectious diseases. Uh, the Greek word here for beast is therion, so it means immeasurable animals. It can refer to a physical animal. It can also refer to pestilences. So there will be released infectious diseases, biological terrorism, biological warfare, possibly anthrax, cholera, bubonic plague, intentionally altered viruses, probably sounds familiar to you today. In the 14th century, I thought this was interesting, up to 60% of Europe's population was destroyed by the bubonic plague. And so we're not just talking about physical beasts, we're talking about pestilences as well. And a quarter of the earth's population is going to be wiped out. So one of every four people, I mean, can you just imagine this, right? It's been hard enough to watch, and I know some of you will disagree with this stat, but let's just, let's just take it as it is. It's been hard enough to watch 770,000 people lose their life to COVID-19. Can you imagine 1.3 billion people? 1.3 billion people. You know, my friend is a pastor in New York. He's in Brooklyn. And um, just within the first two months of, of COVID-19, his congregation was hit really hard. In fact, they lost a, a high percentage of people that were attending their church. And I remember talking to him, and he said, it's so bad here in Brooklyn. So many people are dying. They have no place to put the bodies. And so they, they literally had barges set up where they were placing people's physical bodies on ice because they couldn't bury them quickly enough. Now, I just want you to, you know, think about the massive scale of death that we're talking about here. You know, this isn't just a, this is not a natural disaster. These are not just normal circumstances that are happening. We're talking about in one moment, potentially 1.3 billion people losing their life. You would think, right, you would think that that would wake anybody up. Now, as we go through the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, you're going to recognize this pattern. The first four are always coupled together. There are two that are coupled together, and then the final one leads into another, another series of judgments. So, verse 9, the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our, our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So the fifth seal is the martyrdom of God's people. Um, during this period of time, you know, as much as we for sure do see that the church globally is afflicted and persecuted, there is going to be an even greater persecution against the people of God. I mean, think about this. It, it is really literally going to be unstrained uh, unrestrained attack on God's people. There is going to be no insulation. There's going to be one global religion, and the outliers that will never be welcomed into that religion are those who say there's only one Lord and Savior, and his name is Jesus, and there will be no compromising. And so during this time, right at the beginning, there will be many people who um, are martyred for their faith in Christ. Uh, there, the, the Greek word martyros simply means witness. So they're faithful 
to be a witness to the gospel of Jesus and to what it is that Christ has done in their lives. And John's view is this, that under the altar, there is an altar in heaven. There is resting under the altar those souls of those who've been slain for the word of God. Now, Now, what does that mean and what does that look like? I'll tell you right now, I have no idea whatsoever. And I've heard like tons of different explanations on this. And I think that they're all interesting. Uh, and some of them are really artistic. Um, but, but what I, I think is this. I think it represents that those who are martyred for their faith in Christ have a special place in the heart of God. They have a special place in the heart of God, particularly those who are tribulation saints. And that's what these individuals are called. There is a group of people that are called tribulation saints in chapter 6 to chapter 19. Um, they, they, they are loved by God. They have been preserved by God. Even though they've lost their physical life, they've been preserved for heaven. Uh, they've been faithful to the word of God and the testimony that they held. So there was a, a real, sincere, powerful experience of Christ in their life. And this is the question that they raised to the Lord, not as an accusation, but as a legitimate uh, wondering in their hearts, how long? Right? How long, O Lord, you're holy and true. We know that everything that you do is right. There's no question here about that. But how long until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So the request is, how much longer is this going to be? You know, it would seem almost like a lot of people have, a tr- have trouble with this because as Christians, you know, we don't take vengeance. We don't want revenge. We're following the example of Christ when we're persecuted for our faith. You remember when he was on the cross, the very first thing that he said was what? Yeah, that's right. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen followed that example. Remember when he was being persecuted and he was being stoned by the religious leaders and Saul was there consenting at his death? He said the very same thing. And so some people struggle. Hey, what what is happening here and why are they really asking God to take vengeance? And, And I don't think that what they're saying should be thought of in that sense. I think what they're saying is, Lord, you are faithful to make all things right. You are faithful to make all things right. As messed up as the world often is, as often as there seems to be an absence of real justice, right? I mean, we live with that. I'm going to be talking about that uh, next week or the week after. That really right now in our culture, you do see this, a longing for justice and, and people trying to bring justice in the power of their own might and not being able to reconcile how so many ungodly things can be done on this earth and seemingly go unpunished. But you know, God is going to sort all of that out. And you want to worship a God who's going to sort all of that out, right? I mean, you want to worship a God who can judge rightly either in this life or in the life to come. And I think what they're acknowledging here is this. You know what, God, you're going to make this right. In your timing, you're going to make this right. We don't know when that's going to be, but Father, what's, what seems to be such great victimization on planet Earth right now will be sorted out in your eternal kingdom. And we can trust you for that, right? We can trust you for that. David struggled with this. David's like, man, why is it that the righteous seem to suffer so much and the unrighteous seem to be so blessed? And you know, if you just look at life with that lens and you don't consider all of eternity, that could really make you into a bitter person. 
right? That, I mean, that, that type of thinking will really cause disillusionment in who God is and what your life is all about. We don't see our life through a finite lens. We take eternity into consideration, and we know that God is holy and true, and he will be faithful to make all things right. I believe that that's what's being said here. So he consoles them. Verse 11, then a white robe was given to each of them and was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, were complete. Now, you guys can study this later on, but I mean, it, this is like pregnant with a lot of amazing stuff. Number one, God cares, right? God cares. They have a question. For goodness sakes, they're in heaven and they ask God a question. He doesn't say shut up. He didn't say you didn't raise your hand first. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't get mad at them. He's not, so, he's not so ultra hypersensitive that, you know, he's like, who are you to question me? No, what he does is he consoles them. He knows what they endured. He knows what they suffered. And so he wraps them up in a white robe. You know, it was a white robe that he gave them. The white robe for the people of God always represents the righteousness of Christ. We do not stand before God on our own righteousness. We stand before God in the righteousness that's been imparted to us through the sacrifice of Christ. And then in addition to that, they're consoled in this sense. You need to rest a little while longer. Why? Because God knows. God knows the moment in time. God knows the number of those who still need to be martyred for the faith. And when that last one is martyred, then God is going to take action. You know, I mean, this reminds me of one of the letters to the seven churches. It was to Smyrna when Jesus said to the church, hey, you're going to be thrown into prison for, for, for 10 days. Like, the devil himself is coming after you. I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing to consider that even our suffering is known by God. And that you can take two paths on this. Number one, you can think, well, if God loved me, he wouldn't let me suffer. How could he love me? And still allow these things that he knows are going to come, come to pass, come to pass. Well, because there's pur purpose in everything that he does. And that's the second path. Hey, if God knows it and he's in control, there must be meaning behind it. There must be a plan that he has for it. And, and my responsibility isn't to fight against it. It's not to get mad at God for it. It's to submit to it and to say, God, whatever you want to do first and foremost in my heart Right, because, hey, we're so good at applying this to other people. Hey, bro, I know you're, you're su suffering, but just remember that, that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Right, and you're, you're like, you're like, <sighs> and then someone says that to you and you're like, you are a jerk, man. I mean, aren't you even considerate? Didn't you hear anything that I just said? How can you just like throw that Bible verse at me? You know, it's a great verse and it's absolutely true, but you need to apply it to, to your own life before you apply it to other people's lives. And the fact is this, even in our own suffering, God knows, God has purpose, there's meaning. He's shaping our lives first. And so we don't kick against it. We yield ourselves to what he desires to do. Verse 12, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, like He's, he's, he's getting it, right? So b before it was, it was, hey, come and see, and he looked. Now it's like, okay, hey, I kind of got the routine of this. I, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. By the way, these words are included as well in what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs. 
when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. So, so listen, these are real physical things that are going to happen. I mean, this is not metaphorical. It's not allegorical. I mean, th- these things are going to happen. But, but what the author really is saying, because in this particular era, era all these things represented uh, strength. Right? These were constant things. The sky was viewed as a vault, immovable, unchangeable, steadfast. There's nothing that could change these things outside of the power of God himself. And so all of these things that represented strength to everybody were nothing compared to God as he causes these cataclysmic events to happen on a global scale. And the Bible says in verse 15... And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from, and I've always loved this phrase, and from the wrath of the Lamb. So the cataclysm, think about this, right, all of these things happening uh, on a global scale. There's wars, there's famine, there's widespread death. 1.3 billion people have died. Christians are being martyred for their faith. And then there's cataclysms, a great earthquake. By the way, there's three great earthquakes that you'll see throughout uh, these chapters, all the way up to chapter 19. The sun is blackened, the moon is like blood, the stars fall from their place to the earth. The sky recedes, it's apocalyptic imagery, but it's actually really happening. And the response is this, all of humanity tries to find a bunker, right? Everyone is thinking, I should have been a prepper, I should have, I should have built my bunker, and now I've got to find a hole in the ground. Um, this commentator said this, the day will come when the most expensive piece of real estate will be a hole in the ground. And you think about that, right? Let, let me just find some place where I can escape the wrath of God. It is interesting to me that the response here is not repentance. And unfortunately, what you're going to see, and maybe this is one of the saddest commentaries on the human heart throughout uh, these chapters, is this, that there's a resistance, there's an, an, an imp- impenitence, uh, there's an unrepentance, there's a lack of humility, Like even in the face of knowing, they know that these things that they're experiencing are not just common natural disasters, that these things are in fact the very hand of God. They come from the wrath of the lamb. I love that picture because when you think of lamb, you think gentle, tender. No, this is a lamb with teeth, all right? This is a lamb. This is a lamb that that don't mess around. Like you don't want to play with this lamb. Uh, you know, you would think the wrath of the lion, that makes sense, but this is the wrath of the one who made sacrifice, right? Warren Wearsby said this about wrath. God's wrath is the evidence of his holy love for all that is right and his holy hatred for all that is evil. And, and you see, we'll wrap up with this, but you see both of those things in the cross. You see both of those things in the cross. You see the evidence of his holy love for us, Right in providing a path for us, in extending an invitation to us, 
in making a global declaration for all of humanity that this is how deeply he has loved every single soul. You know, you might have come in tonight and you, you know, you might feel invisible. You might feel unloved. You might feel like nobody cares. And maybe in your circle, no one does. But there is somebody who does. You're not invisible. You're seen. You're seen by God. We're going to talk about this in two weeks on Sunday morning with respect to Hagar. She was victimized. She was rejected. She was an outcast. None of what she was experiencing was her own fault. And she came in contact with the God who sees. He is a God who loves. And the cross is a demonstration. He was stretched out on the cross to pay a penalty for our sins. But it's emblematic. It's symbolic. His arms stretched out beckoning all people to come to him. It is the greatest demonstration of love the world has ever seen. There's nothing like it. There will never be anything like it. And you can look at the cross of Christ and know that God loves you. You can also look at the cross of Christ and know that God hates evil. And, you know, we don't talk about this very much, but, but, but think about the lengths that God went to to deal with the issue of evil. How evil is one singular sin? Well, you look back to the garden and you recognize all it was was a bite of one bite uh, from one piece of fruit and the, the whole world was thrown into a tailspin. Right? That's how significant one single sin is against an almighty, holy, and righteous God. As God not only demonstrates his love for us in the sacrifice of Christ, he also demonstrates his hatred for unrighteousness. Because if God didn't hate unrighteousness, Christ would have never have died. If it was not a big deal, if it was insignificant, if it could be swept under the carpet, right? If God could just turn away, turn away and ignore it. God can't ignore it. A, a price had to be paid. A declaration was made. And what was the price? Look, it's evil is so evil. Wickedness is so wickedness that not even your good works can get you up out of that hole. Right? Even all of your philanthropies and your kindnesses and, and how good you are to people will never be able to settle the issue of sin in your life. That's how deep and dark wickedness is. And when you look at the cross, listen, don't just remember how deep God's love for you is. Remember how much he hates sin. And I think that compels us to righteous living. It compels us to righteous living. It's not the law that compels us to do the right things before God. It's the cross of Christ. It's understanding that he went to the cross and he paid a penalty for every single sin that we have ever committed because that's how wicked and evil sin is in the eyes of a holy and righteous God. And so here when we're looking at the wrath of the lamb, what's, what's that a reflection of? It's a reflection of his sacrifice. Any name could have been named here for him. But it ties us to the sacrifice. It reminds us of not only his deep, holy love for us, but his hatred for sin. And all that he had to do, all that he had to do to restore us from our own failure and to redeem us to God. Verse 17, for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? You know, it's just, it's heartbreaking tonight. You read the story and you think, man, seeing all of that, Seeing all, I think about the rich man who died, and you remember uh, the Lazarus died, the poor man as well, and the rich man is in a place of suffering, and Lazarus is in, is, is in Abraham's bosom, and he, and he says, the rich man does, just send him back, send him back, send to them, send to them word, let my family know, 
And Jesus said, hey, they've got the law and the prophets. A miracle isn't going to do it. We have the testimony and revelation of God's word. Tonight, it's one thing to remark at these individuals and their impenitence in the face of such wrath. But listen, let's just bring it home to our own hearts. What does it take for us to be repentant? What does it take for us to respond to the love of God and the demonstration of his hatred for evil through the sacrifice of his son? What lengths does God have to go to to wake us up, to, to bring us to a place where our hearts are tender and sensitive to the prodding of his Holy Spirit? It's one thing for us to look at these people and, and, to, and to think, man, how stubborn can humanity be? But the more important question is this, how stubborn are we sometimes? And let's, let's keep ourselves in a place where as we consider the sacrifice of Christ, our hearts are tender to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, so tender that no matter what it is that he points out, just as the Bible says in Revelation chapter 3, that we are zealous to repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. As many as I love, I rebuke. Therefore, be zealous to repent. And Lord, we thank you tonight for these strong words in Revelation chapter 6. And we, in some ways, are astounded by the hardness of humanity's heart. But the truth is this, our own hearts can be hardened. God, we want to be tender. We want our hearts to be in your hand. We don't want anything in our lives that would hinder our communion with you. And so search our hearts. Father, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our sins. Help us not to be stubborn in our resistance to you. Thank you for how deeply you love us. Thank you for the extent of your love and the giving of your son and his sacrifice. Thank you for the lamb. And tonight as our eyes are closed, we're just, just compelled to ask tonight as there should always be an opportunity for us to respond to the conviction of God's spirit. Maybe this evening you've never put your trust and faith in Christ. Maybe this is your first time to church. Maybe you've been coming for some time, but God's been knocking on the door of your heart. God has been speaking to you. And you know, you've, You've been putting him off and maybe even hardening your heart against him. But tonight he's beckoning, beckoning you to come, to humble yourself, to receive the gift of salvation that he has for you. God won't let you go. And maybe tonight you're just a little annoyed at that. You want relief from this overwhelming sense of conviction, but that's the love of God for you. He doesn't want to quit because you matter that much to him. He values you that much. Tonight, if you've never put your trust and faith in Christ, there's a decision for you to make tonight that only you can make. There is a, a command, a calling that God has on your life to trust in Christ. And you're the only one, you're the only one who can respond in obedience. Tonight, you need to choose to say yes. You need to stop resisting God, fighting him off, giving some justification again as to why this time is not convenient for you. 
to put your faith in Jesus. He loves you tonight. But you have an issue of sin that has to be sorted out. And he's the only one who can. Your good works will never save you. Only faith in his sacrifice will. And tonight, I just, just simply want to ask, as God has been speaking to you, if you need to take a step of faith tonight in trusting Christ, you need to come to him and stop fighting against him. I want to pray for you tonight. Now, I'm going to ask right where you're sitting, would you raise your hand? You would say tonight, Derek, that's me. I don't want to resist God anymore. I want to believe. I want to trust in Jesus. I want to move forward in faith. I want all that God has for me. I need to be forgiven of my sin. Right where you're sitting tonight, just stretch your hand up high. Let me see who you are. I want to pray for you. Awesome. Thank you right here in the front and over here in the back on my right. Thank you. Anybody else? Tonight, maybe as a Christian, you know, these, these words are jarring in Revelation chapter 6. And, and you know, maybe you've, you're just being provoked tonight to, to have your own awakening there needs to be awakening. Maybe there's just a, been a little soul sleep in your life. You know, you've gotten into worldly routines. And you know, you, you need, God is shaking you up right now. And he's calling you to, to lean in to him. To really take your relationship with him seriously. Maybe even to the extent where he's saying to you, stop playing games with me. You're either all in or you're not in at all. And tonight, Christian, if this is you and you really need to renew your commitment of faith in Christ and your walk with him to follow Jesus with everything that you have, would you raise your hand tonight? Awesome, thank you. I see your hands. I see your hand. He loves you. He's so good. I see your hand too. He's so good to us and so patient. You can put your hands down. And Father, thank you so much for each of these tonight, God, and the special work of your spirit in their lives. As they just follow in prayer tonight and make their confession to you, we pray that you would hear from heaven and do all that you desire to do in their lives. Right where you're sitting tonight, for those of you who have raised your hands, I want to lead you in a prayer. I want to lead you in a prayer because I can't repent for you. And I can't confess your faith in Christ. You have, you're going to have your own witness. And so tonight you need to pray. It needs to come from your heart. It needs to come from your lips. And I want to lead you. I just want to guide you in prayer tonight. You're praying to God. But I want to guide you in these words. It's a, it's a prayer of repentance. Just being straight up honest with God about sin in your life. And it's a prayer of about confessing your faith in Jesus. You know that there's one way to the Father, and that's through the Son. And tonight, if you raise your hand, I want you to follow me in prayer. I pray this with me. God, tonight, I give you my life. And Father, I confess that I've sinned against you. And God, I'm drawing a line. I'm saying no to sin. I'm saying yes to your son. Tonight I believe in Jesus. That he died to save me. And to rescue me from my sin. Tonight I confess my faith in him. 
I pray that you would renew me by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.